Hello, and welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the movie pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me as always, my good buddy Dan. Dan, how's it going? It is going spectacularly. I am looking forward to this week. This is uh, one we probably should have gotten to the very day it came out. Yes. Because we are going to get a chance to talk about, quite possibly, the most fantastic comic book movie ever created. But still in theaters across the Spider-Verse. little bit of a spoiler there as far how I'm, uh, I'm thinking about this. <laughs> yes. So... so- Hopefully you've seen it. It's been out now a little over a month, but we're going to talk about it. And uh, but before we do that, let's talk a little bit of comic book news. And the uh, story I wanted to mention was Marvel's 2023 San Diego Comic-Con panel panels and schedule have been revealed. So there's an article on comicbook.com that goes through the uh, this year's San Diego Comic-Con panel lineup which includes Marvel's Next Big Thing, an hour-long panel previewing what's next for Spider-Man, the Guardians of the Galaxy, and the new Ultimate Universe. So in the article, you'll see all the panels that they've got set up from Thursday, July 20th through Sunday, July 23rd. Lots of other activities and and signings and other things like that not quite available just yet. But just to give you a peek, on Thursday, there's a designing the X-Men, a This Week in Marvel special event. On Friday, they have Marvel, Heroes, Hulks, and Super Soldiers. Saturday, there is Marvel, The Next Big Thing. And Sunday, there is a Women of Marvel panel. So if you are going to the San Diego Comic-Con, you are not going to be in short supply of Marvel information. Yep. However, for the first time in a while... Um, they're not doing an MCU panel there, correct? No, there is no Marvel Studios. Marvel Studios is passing on San Diego Comic-Con this year. So this is all Marvel Comics. Yep. And so that's a little bit interesting that they have decided basically that they're not going to, to be doing that. So all of this stuff is going to be on the comic side, not on the live action or animated side. As far as, as far as we know now... Obviously, there could be some surprise panel or whatever, but uh-huh. but as far as anything announced, it's looking like they and DC are actually sort of taking a pass this year. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting that they both end up doing it the same year. That seems like it would be uh, right pickings potentially for one studio if they knew the other one wasn't going. But uh, I'm sure they both have different reasons for not, not going just yet. Yep. So uh, as far as... New on Marvel Unlimited this week. It is back working again. There is only one new number one coming out this week. It is a Planet of the Apes book. However, there are four number twos, and some of those might be worth exploring. Uh, Those would include Cosmic Ghost Rider, Rogue and Gambit, and I Am Iron Man, and Spider-Gwen Shadow Clones. So uh, lots of of interesting stuff there that you could... uh, jump into if you if you don't have something you're currently reading. Yeah, interesting that Planet of the Apes is back 
Marvel has done Planet of the Apes comics before back in the day. So I've already got some of them in my boxes from back in the 70s. But good stuff. Looks like there are going to be some interesting things coming out this week. There's a lot of books. So hopefully some things that uh, that you'd enjoy if you're out there on Marvel Unlimited. Dan, do you have a recommendation for us for this week? Yeah, so for this week, I've been reading actually, uh, kind of catching up on my reading. I did this week my what I call my annual cleanup, where I take all the books that I bought in the last year or so, and I put out these big, long folding tables and just sort everything. My daughter helped me, actually. And during that, I was reminded that I was a couple issues behind on Parker Girls, which is the Abstract Studios book by um, by Terry Moore, and his wife helps him. But basically, it's it's mostly Terry Moore that does story art, everything like that. It's been a really good story. Uh, it's essentially a suspense thriller about a bunch of female spies and sort of their adventures, and then there's kind of an an evil other spy group that they're now in a fight with that they're trying to, to get things sorted out but the art's always good the story's fun he's been telling basically the same sort of story for a long time i have an actual long box of terry moore comics starting with the old strangers in paradise stuff and moving to current and always found it to be really enjoyable so if you're looking for something a little different than the superhero stuff parker girls may be uh maybe a good choice that sounds good all right, so I think we've buried the lead long enough, so why don't we jump in and let's talk about Across the Spider-Verse. This is your spoiler warning. This movie is a little, only a little over a month old, so we're going to be diving into uh, a discussion, a recap and discussion about characters, about plot, about story, all sorts of stuff. And so if you have not seen this movie, and I think we both would highly recommend you do, Definitely stop the recording, go out, see the film, and then come back to us. But if you have seen it, please stick around, and we're going to talk all about this really great animated film. Jumping in and talking about the film facts, there is no tagline for this film. As best I can tell, I went looking for it, and there is no tagline, so... No tagline. The movie was released June 2nd, 2023. It has a runtime of 140 minutes. Box office worldwide, just over $619 million. And domestically, it has brought in three over $351 million so far. Because this is still in theaters. It is still racking up money. I went and saw the film today. So... I'm going to add a few more dollars to that list on a budget, by the way, of only $100 million. The IMDb rating for this is an 8.9 out of 10. It stars Shamik Moore, Haley Steinfeld, Brian Tyree Henry, Luna Lauren Velez, Jake Johnson, Jason Schwartzman, and Oscar Isaac. It is directed by Joaquin DeSantos, Kemp Powers, and Justin K. Thompson, with screenplay credit going to Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, and Dave Callaham. So those are your film facts for Across the Spider-Verse. Dan, let's talk about a recap. You have a recap here. Sometimes we try and intermix 
discussion topics with the recap, but there's a lot to talk about. And I think you just, I think we're just going to go through the recap and then we're going to talk about everything. Right. But before we get to that, as you're our, you're our movie investigator kind of. Okay. A tagline. Is that something most movies have is like, would like the top gun movie. Would that have had a tagline or is it something that kind of just happened in the Marvel universe or the more like the genre universe? I think it's uh, more common than, than not. And it's not just across the superhero genre or, or anything like that. It, there does seem to be, you know, a lot of times there is a tagline that's associated with the film very, very early on. It ends up being on movie posters and things like that. Uh, but this this one does not have one. With that out of the way, leading into said recap you were talking about, I tried to kind of uh, bring this down a little bit. Obviously, we're not going to mention every character that appears because we'll oh, be here till Tuesday, right? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yes, if if I if I didn't mention your favorite character, I apologize. They probably went by quickly. So. We start this one off with Gwen Stacy, who's actually fighting a dimensionally displaced version of the Vulture from kind of a renaissance world. After defeating him with the help of other spider folk, she then reveals herself to her father at the end of the battle, and he ends up trying to arrest her. She then escapes off, rather than being arrested, with some of the other Spideys and joins the Spider Society. Kind of takes off with with Miguel and and Spider-Woman Jessica Drew. We then cut to Miles, who's still hanging out in, and, uh, in his dorm, pining for Gwen and fighting a D-list villain called The Spot when he's on his way to try and go to a meeting with his parents. Spot actually turns out to have been a scientist who was caught in the collider explosion from the first movie, and Gwen ended up coming to the 1610 dimension where Miles lives on a mission to track him. But she ends up hanging out with Miles and actually allows the spot then to be unwatched and he ends up stealing some Alchemex tech that lets him create holes between universes. Angry that his Spider-Man doesn't respect him, the spot actually decides to move from dimension to dimension with his new abilities, gaining power as he does so by accumulating more and more technology and sort of spot-producing capability from various Alchemex labs in the different dimensions. Gwen and Jess then take off after him, going to Mumbhatan, where they work with Pavatar Prabhakar, I think, Spider-Man India, to stop the spot. Miles tags along uninvited and ends up interrupting what this called a cannon event by saving Pavitar's friend, who's a police captain. Uncles and police captains always seem to die around Spider-Man, we find out, and when that doesn't happen, things go very wrong. Miles finds this out when he's taken to the interdimensional headquarters of the Spider Society. Miguel, who we saw earlier, and he's Spider-Man 2099 in the comics, monologues to him about the importance of these events, and many of Miles' friends arrive and agree that certain events in the timeline of a spider just have to happen the way they happen and can't be changed. Miles won't accept that, though, especially as his dad is soon to become a police captain, and the Spot has vowed to kill his parents to try and make Miles or Spider-Man respect him because he thinks he's being disrespected, which technically he was being yes. disrespected. Villain of the week it was the, was the <laughs> tagline given to him. Yes. But in any case, this means that his canon captain is actually his father, and that canon event 
could just be around the corner. Miguel then tries to imprison Miles so he can't return home to stop the death of his father, but he escapes and leads the entire spider society on a chase. Eventually he eludes them, returns, and uses a machine at the Spidey headquarters to send him back to his Earth. What he did not realize is that the spider that bit him was actually intended for a different Miles in a different dimension, and that is where he ends up being deposited, essentially Dimension or Universe 42. He finds his doppelganger there and finds out that in this dimension he is actually still working with his Uncle Aaron, his father has died, and Miles has now become the Prowler. Our Miles is actually captured then by his bad self, and the movie ends with Gwen putting together an old team from the first Spider-Verse movie to go off and try to save him. With the to-be-continued there at the end that is just like, to oh, man. Continued. Yep. All right. Yeah, so, so that was a lot that happened. There was still a lot more that happened in this film. So let's dive in and let's talk about this. Let's. I, I think you, because this is an animated film, you have to start with the animation and just the look the aesthetic of this film and i have to tell you the characters the set pieces and the movement shown throughout this film is just absolutely amazing it is yep. it is very frenetically paced it is quick there are there is so much movement and so so much happening and the backgrounds and and the characters themselves even are just so rich and vibrant in color and 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 like different looks depending on which universe you're in and different uh and which spider person you're 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 dealing with here and it is it, it is something else dan what did you think of of the animation and and like the artist look of the film it's just staggering to even think how far this film is ahead of most other animated films and especially ahead of other animated or even really in many cases live action films in terms of the understanding and respect it has for the media it's adapting right that it's hard to even conceive of I, I didn't understand how a comic book should look when it's put on the screen until i saw some of the panels and some of the in the last movie in this one yeah. You start to really see the way things could have been done if people, again, had just been trusting the media, trusting the idea, and then finding ways to really sort of fulfill, you know, a, another dimension of comic books on the screen. And I, I can't say enough about it. It is, it is everything I could want in a movie. We've talked about in some of the like the live action stuff, we've talked about like the live action scenes that look like they're straight out of a comic book panel. They, they, they've done such a masterful job of taking and making a live action version of a comic book panel. And in this film, it feels like almost every scene is just a collection of comic book panels. It is, it is unbelievable how you know what you what you're seeing and and how how things how things are are made to look and it, and it does it feels like a comic book movie when it's all said and done and i and I, and i say that with the highest 
regard and praise for that statement. Yep. Well, and I think the other thing that is nice about it is that you know, you've seen like in, say, the 300 or some of these where Zack Snyder basically reproduced Frank Miller's comic book panel for panel almost. Watchmen kind of did much the same sort of thing. This doesn't do that. What it does is it takes comic book panels and it takes almost like the idea of a panel and some of its construction elements like, you know, balloons or editor's notes and stuff. And then it just extends it. It gives it additional dimension and makes it something that the comic book can't, which is still, it's almost like seeing a comic book panel, but then pulling out from it and seeing the actual live scene that the comic book panel was Was a a photograph that was taken of, right? And it, it is nice to see that they didn't simply try to make a movie that looked like a comic book they literally did try to make a movie that looked like it was set in a world where if you took pictures, they would turn into comic book panels. Right. If that makes any sense at yes, all. Yes, yes. I, I, I definitely would agree. And so the interesting thing I found out about this when, when I was researching this is so we have these different universes that we, we see throughout this film, and apparently they had different artists working on each one of them so and they had different styles and they had different animation techniques that they they used across those different uh universes as well for an example earth 65 which is the home of gwen stacy has a very impressionistic watercolor painting sort of look and so it mm-hmm. looks completely different than every other universe, right? It looks and yeah. has like I was it was amazed at like the background of everything that was going on when she's like in her room or in the house talking to her dad and then like when they're at the Guggenheim and and different things yep. like this. It was so amazing. Yeah, it's it's an entire world built on essentially emotional color. Yes. Like you've got you know, you've got sort of these almost depressing sort of blues, and you've got when she gives her dad a hug, there's this massive almost orange sort of warm, you know, yeah. freshly break, baked bread sort of, yes. of light that comes out. And everything kind of almost like the colors are like still dripping watercolor in the background. It is it is so absolutely just emotion on the sleeve type of uh type of a style. It's beautiful. So you talked to, you talked in your recap about um, Moom Bat, Bat I can't I'm trying to say it Moom Bat Hatton. Bat Bat right? Yes, yes. So after Mumbai and Manhattan, it's just crammed together. There was a Gotham Entertainment Group's Spider-Man India comic series that was based around that and had a look and feel yep. and had every world felt lived in and felt real and felt like it was authentic and it was it was amazing to see and then the uh nouveau york the uh the futuristic new york city where the spider society is and where the uh headquarters is based in has a neo-futuristic look sid mead had had some uh uh style or influence in that look and 
The other thing that's interesting is they brought in artists that like helped create some of these characters, like Rick Lenardi, who co-created Spider-Man 2099, was actually brought in to adapt his own designs for the film so that they could do such an authentic job of bringing Miguel O'Hara and Spider-Man 2099 to the big screen. And I think it, I think it works. Obviously it works. It, they, it did, they did a fantastic job. So Sid Mead, by the way, I've always, I've always been a fan of him for a couple of reasons. He was born in Minnesota. So like myself, he is a Minnesota boy. And also he worked on Blade Runner. So he did mm. some of the designs and artwork for Blade Runner. Yeah. So they take, they took some artwork from him. I also love that, you know, even like the vulture really looks yeah. like a Da Vinci drawing. It so does. There's a lot of cases where they not only are are using art styles that are are unique and look like an, an artist, like an individual artist has done them, even though in many cases it's not. It's a group of people or something like that that are doing these, you know, like the person who did Hobie, I think had a lot of influence over not only how they changed the frame rates on them, but it was 2D and 3D mixed. Brian Steelfreeze, uh, who is a long time, well, very respected comic book artist, helped shape Jessica Drew's character and the like. I even love that they even like talking about art within it. There's a point early in the movie when Vulture is fighting with Gwen and the the other spiders and he like knocks into a bunch of modern uh -huh. art he's like this is not art right and, you know and, and she's like well we're talking about it aren't we and so that whole idea that they are doing all these artistic styles and and they're also because the the art they're crashing into with the big balloon animals and stuff that's actually a guy named Jeff Coons it's an actual retrospective exhibit that was at like the Met or one of the Guggenheim or one of these New York museums at one point. They're, they're doing a lot of really cool meta stuff with the whole idea of art while they're doing this. But what it comes down to is having all these different worlds that look lived in and authentic, but also it's like almost kind of like reading a an event book where you're reading five different titles and they've all got kind of the same story interlinked, but they're drawn by different people. And with all of that weird change. It was also really interesting seeing when this, when the art sort of collided, like when Vulture is fighting at the Guggenheim. And so you've got this, this really single style of art clashing against this other side of art with a background of other, you know, different oh. things. And it, and it gets like when we're, when we're in, in the future New York, you have all those different Spider-Men or Spider-People. So, so you're seeing all these different art styles, all these different types of characters. And, and so they're, and they're just kind of interacting with each other and, and like there's yep. action sequences with them. And so it, it, it just, it is, it is a feast for the eyes. And the, the only thing I'll say negatively about it is because there's so much going on and the shots are moving so quickly at times, it is hard to, take it all in in just one view. It's impossible and, to take it all and in. And taking it in multiple viewings even. Yeah, I picked up a few more things today when they're doing like the little notes of who all these spider people are that are in the spider society. You just, you can't keep up with all of them because there's so much going on and they're there and then they're gone. 
so quickly. It, it's like, man, I wish I could pause this like dozens and dozens of times so I could actually catch everything that's going on in this. Yep. Yeah, this is something you could very easily sit down and you know once once you can get it in a in a thing you can just hang out in in your recliner and go freeze frame on and go through and look at things there's going to be even a couple when i was looking at some other stuff a while ago i didn't realize that there are like 10 stan lees in the original movie <laughs> Evidently, he's got his it. one cameo but there's also stan lees like going by on the subway when they're doing stuff and there's stan lees walking down the street there's he's got not one cameo but cameos all over the place in that movie and I, I think I would have never seen those on first look. You have to actually go back and watch over and over again. Anyways, the different artists. And then also, you know, you mentioned uh, Pavita, that his whole movement style as well is different. They based it on like some some Indian martial art type things. Back in the day, Gwen Station, she doesn't have them in this one, but she started out having the ballet slippers. She's much more fluid. Miles is actually still kind of gawky. He never really looks like he's particularly elegant in any of his movements. He's just got kind of arms and legs going everywhere while he's doing stuff. So each of them has this very, even though they've mostly got the same powers, very different visual movement style that makes right. them easily you know, differentiated and makes it cool watching them all together. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the voice acting. One thing I don't think people realize is just how incredibly hard voice acting is and how how it can be rather time consuming to to do record all those lines and they think just because you're not on the screen in like a live action thing that it is, you know, it's it, it's a it, an easy paycheck sort of thing, but they the entire cast did a fantastic job here and, and the thing I think about is all the emotion that is shared throughout this film between, say, Gwen and her father or Miguel and his anger and disappointment about uh, everything that's going on and how, you know, he's kind of at his wits end of trying to keep things together and, you know, is frustrated by Miles and you've got Miles yeah. and his family and, and how they're kind of betting, batting heads, butting heads and and... You never doubt any of it. It always, it, it it just, it matches what you're seeing on the screen, the animation and the art that's on the screen. And and it just, it works. And I, I particularly, uh, Steinfeld's Gwen, uh, Jason Schwartzman's Spot, and, and Oscar Isaac's Miguel O'Hara, I think, particularly did a fantastic job in this film. What I loved about it was that a lot of times when you're watching animated movies that have voice actors, the character is almost designed around the actor. And yes. the actor does almost an exaggerated version of their own voice. So it's very obvious that Chris Rock is the one who's doing the character because it looks like Chris Rock as a zebra or whatever, right? Can't remember who he played in Madagascar. But in this one, it was very hard for me to really keep track of the fact these actors were famous people. They were just the characters. It was almost more like they were actually taking on the personas rather than being famous people doing voices for the characters. Right. Like, like I would have never 
I've watched a lot of Oscar Isaac stuff. I would have never known Oscar Isaac played Miguel if I didn't know it. Right. If if you hadn't seen that that was who, who was actually yep. doing that. Yeah. He did a great job, but I wouldn't have known it was him. Wholeheartedly agree. Next thing, kind of just a couple of of things, just as as kind of some interesting things I saw in the movie that I wanted to note. One is that after it came out, there was actually a little bit of a kerfuffle that came up in some spots. And I, I've titled this this one, Allegory is Dead in the Modern World. But uh, there were some people who were actually pretty angry about the appearance of a protect trans kids flag that's kind of just briefly shown on the top of the wall in Gwen's room. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the colors of Gwen Stacy kind of are similar to the, the that flag as well, kind of a light blue and a pink and, and white. Some people just didn't like the fact that that was brought in at all. Others took it as an indication that Gwen herself was transgender. I think most likely... What I would read it as just is that you know, Gwen is a kid with a secret she's keeping from her dad. She's afraid to tell him. And that provides kind of a connection point that the movie's creators could use to make sort of a nod towards the current social issue that they wanted to highlight. Comics have always done this. Comics yeah. have always had this element, you know, where a lot of the characters are outsiders and they are misunderstood got groups like the X-Men that have been looked at as representing Jewish Americans in some of their stories. They've also been used as sort of an allegorical treatment for gay Americans. The point isn't that the characters themselves are actually Jewish or gay, although sometimes there are X-Men that are both of those things, but that their experiences actually parallel the struggles of those communities and can kind of help readers to better understand and empathize with other people in those groups. Yeah. I think it's pretty clear that's what they were trying to do. It's it's like I said, something comics have been doing for decades. Right. But it is disheartening to see people get all in you know, up in arms about something like that. Makes me kind of angry. Nonetheless, I think it was a cool it was a cool little nod. It was nice also because with her colors, it was an easy way to bring that in and kind of make it especially with her story and the way she's trying to keep that secret from her dad. Something that, that really worked in the story as well. Well played. I, I noticed it the first time I saw it. I actually missed it the second time watching it today, but I knew it was there and I am perfectly fine with doing it. In fact, I applaud everyone involved in making in making that happen because I think... Those are the sorts of things that Stan Lee always would talk about in his in, in his columns and things in there way way back when, mm -hmm. and I think it's something that they can do, and I, I am glad that they are using using that outlet to do just that. And I mean, it's not like it's that big a thing. It's literally no. the least they can do. It's like a it one is. second thing on a wall. So right. it's not something that's being blared out in the middle of of the, the middle of the, the movie for 10 minutes or something. Another thing that interested me is Miles and the Prowler. So at the end of the movie, we see that in an alternate universe, Miles has become the Prowler, right? In the comics that we read just last week, I think you'll find, hopefully you agree with this, but 
Miles is a very moral kid from the very beginning. Right. There's really nothing about him that says this kid's going to become a criminal, right? He at no point seems to be willing to really fall in with his uncle's criminal ways. And in fact, his family is very careful in trying to make sure they keep him away from the uncle because his uncle in the comics is more purely bad and Miles is more purely good. So it's a, it's a much more black and white sort of a situation there. In the movie, though, Miles seems to be far more susceptible to Uncle Aaron's ideas. He's following him around, breaking into places and doing graffiti. We even see early on in the first movie, after he gets his powers and when he first starts to get his spider sense, that for a while his, his sort of colors are green and purple. And it's pretty clear, I think, looking back on it, that even then they had sort of this idea that he was a kid on the verge of going bad and following his uncle's path. He was kind of at that that fork in the road between being like his dad, who's a cop, and being like his uncle, who's a criminal. And when he gets the spider powers and he meets Peter Parker, his colors change from green and purple to blue and red. And that then begins that transition and the change of his story towards being a hero. Which means in a universe where... The spider doesn't bite him. There's a good chance that Miles is going to go bad, especially, especially with his dad not around. Yep. And in fact, there's evidently a flashback, and I didn't see this, but I believe there's a flashback in one of the movies where you actually see that the spider, the 42 spider, was going to bite was going to bite Miles Morales in that universe, and it's the the. The Miles Morales who's got the same hair is the one who becomes the spider with like the, the dreadlocks. And so this is the kid, the, the Miles Morales, who then had his life disrupted when the spider went and bit a Miles in another universe. I find it interesting that as with Peter, it's sort of that transition and then in the end, his uncle's death that really cements Spider-Man's path as a hero. So it is when his Uncle Aaron dies that he really sort of goes, okay, let's go all in on this. Yeah. But that green-purple in the first movie, there's a level of pre-planning and of understanding who they believed the character was and where they were going with the story that you just have to applaud. Right? And I did not get that before. No, but now, I didn't in either. retrospect, yeah. it's like, okay, you know... And that's the, the cool thing is it seems very obvious that these guys know what they want and they are building this story very carefully and it all just fits together perfectly. So what did you think with the, with the changes between Miles in the comics as opposed, I think this is one of the big differences. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so when I watched the movie initially, I hadn't, we hadn't read the comics yet, so it, it didn't shock me so much when i mean it did sort of with the reveal but at the end like i think it's supposed to seeing it the second time today it's like wow he this this really is just a matter of you know what sort of what can happen if the influence uh, you know situations are are even slightly different there's no spider-man yep. there's 
you know, his dad dies and his uncle lives and things like this, just how much of a difference things, things can be and, and ways that, uh, it can be different. And, um, I, I did not remember the green and purple from the first film, but it, it would not surprise me that they, that they did that because again, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier with the idea of, of using the art and the color and stuff. This is the sort of thing they would do in a comic book to kind of hint at this because they couldn't do it any other way. And so, so seeing it play out in the movie, I think is, 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 is great. It is different. I I like Miles Morales as the purely good kid, but yeah. on the other hand, I think they're going to tell a, they're going to tell a nice story with this. It it does always bother me a certain bit though, when they take heroes, and then they put them in alternate universes where they become the bad guy, because one of the things that growing up always separated the heroes from the bad guys was that they were just at a certain level kind of the people who made that decision not to go back. Right. And so I know that's part of the appeal of it. You'd th- you'd like to think they're always going to be able to make that decision no matter the circumstances, no. but but I but I think we're seeing here what the what they're trying to share here is is that maybe isn't the case and even somebody as good a kid as Miles is if the circumstances are different he might not necessarily make the the right choice. It might go down an entirely different path. And this has been a regular thing in comics since the 80s. Uh, There is a, essentially, um, probably my most hated comic book, which is somewhat controversial because a lot of people really respect it, is called The Killing Joke. In that, the Joker theorizes that Batman is just the same as him and he's just one one bad day away from going going to the evil side. That essentially it doesn't matter who the person is, they can go bad. That's not going to ever be one of my recommendations, by the way. You can We can do this for 40, 40 years until I'm 100 years old and in a home, and I am, I am never, ever going to recommend The Killing Joke to anyone. You have a suggestion to talk about some of the Easter eggs in here, but there is, there is so much in this film that is i think nods to obviously comic books but like the first film other mc and other like marvel movies things like that it is it is amazing how referential uh things are in this film i guess the thing i want to say though is that there are easter eggs where you know you're walking by and there's somebody's name on a sign or something like this, right? And that has absolutely no relevance to the plot, and it's literally just pandering to a certain percentage of the audience who happens to know, you know, who this particular creator is. You know, it's Siegel Products or whatever in a Superman movie, and it's right? But the Easter eggs here are not like that for the most part. I mean, there are some. There are tons of tiny ones with, like, things on shelves in his room and little things that just go by. But the Easter eggs I'm talking about are things that just put you in the mood of what the story's about 
and really impact things. I think that the fact that we get a Comics Code Authority stamp as the very first thing. Yeah. I mean, that's that's on the cover of every comic book from like 1950 to about 1990, right? That is the first thing you see when you get a comic book is the logo and the Comics Code Authority. It just puts you in kind of a mood. I, I literally just love it when I saw that. It's It's perfect. The four color pixels that we continue to see on Miles' design, where you get almost like that look where you used to get on lower quality paper, where you could actually see the four color printing dots when you looked closely at the at the pages, gives the whole thing this sort of just a, a visceral comic book, tactile sort of appeal to me. And it's hard to explain it, but it absolutely has continued into the next movie where I just love it. It it feels like a comic book, not because of an Easter egg of something on, you know, the shelf or whatever, but because the actual way they designed the characters continually brings you back into the mind of comic books. I love that there was an editor's note at the beginning uh, when they start when they talked about the hammer space. And then there's a little tiny editor's note blurb that pops up at the bottom saying hammer space and it defines it, which is something we saw in comic books yes. all the time back in the day. Yes, it was. Right? They had comic covers and reproductions of comic covers. And it looks like as they did before, they would have people like Sarah Pacelli and actual comic artists come in and do sort of like replica comic covers of the characters in the movie in their in their movie costume so it's original art but it's done by actual comic artists right yeah it's kind of how it framed the different kind of sections of the film we had it would go it would almost use that as a way of kind of turning the page from one portion of the movie to the next it was it was great and then you know we do start to get into some things that are truly just overwhelming nostalgia and and easter eggs but you have to talk about all the spider-man right there are hundreds, potentially a thousand Spider-Men, it seems, wandering around. Spider-Men, Spider-Women, Spider-Pigs, Spider-Horses. Everything spider you can imagine. Yeah. Spider-Cats. They're, they're all everywhere. And a large percentage of them actually have occurred in the comics, have were created in the comics and then have come in. You know, you've got uh, Paviter, Jessica, Miguel, Hobie, Ben Riley. all are, are sort of like characters with lines a lot of the ones returning from the previous movie and then they just do weird things like the pointing spider-man meme is in there (laughs) they've got the spider-man the spider buggy it's they play with a lot of the history but do it in ways that you know makes an actual joke or is actually in service of the of the story you know even the fact that at a certain point when he's trying to get into the spider society and she's like oh it's it's kind of a small group right and then they get there and there's literally every spider-man in the universe is there except him and it Uh pays off that joke as well as giving you this cornucopia of of characters to sort of just check out even spot believe it or not actual deep cut villain from the universe uh there's actually a rumor that that was not originally going to be the villain, but Avi Arad, who's been around forever, he, he's been one of the 
the Sony uh, folks since back in the days of X-Men. He recommended actually Spot, and because of the dimensional hopping capabilities he had, they decided that he would actually be a good fit. And then, they're not just doing the comics, but they do callbacks to all the previous movies as well. Yeah, And yeah. those are probably the most fan service of it. Popping sure. into the various dimensions, whatever. Those are true cameos. But most of these things actually added to the storytelling in a, in a real way. When you're seeing Miguel talk about the great web and the canon, the canon events and talks about, you know, uncle dying and you see Toby Maguire standing over uncle Ben from the mm-hmm. very, from the first Spider-Man movie for Sony. It's, it just, it makes sense. It's like, of course that makes perfect sense. You know, you get J. Jonah Jameson, no matter where they are, no matter what universe, you have him talking yep. smack about about Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Man in, in, in wherever, in whatever universe they're in and is distrusting uh, of of some spider person, I guess, because he's he, he actually, I think, was talking uh, badly about about Gwen, I think, too. I have no doubt. Yeah, he's and and so that. Actually, that's a perfect segue, if you want to get away from from uh, Easter eggs, into the last thing that I kind of wanted to talk about, which is early on, maybe the first line in the movie, is Gwen saying, let's do things differently this time, right? And I think that's the theme of this whole, this whole movie. They laid it out. That's the thesis statement of this Spider-Verse movie, is that... There have been a lot of Spider-Man movies and they all basically hit the same story beats and they've got the same characters and they've got the same sort of at this point tired and familiar tropes. Right. And so Miles Morales himself back in 2011 when Bendis and Pacelli brought him out was essentially somebody where they're saying let's do something di- let's do things differently this time. Right? And now the movie's doing the same thing where it comes in and examines that idea of canon and says, hey, we all see these same things happen all the time, right? And even Miles Morales, as different a character as he is, when it comes down to it, we're still seeing the same tropes. Mm -hmm. You know, bright science kid has his problems with the other kids in school, ends up fighting all of these guys, his uncle dies, etc., etc., and maybe it's time to change it up. And so I love that they're actually coming in head on on one of the problems that I think both the comic and the movie universes are having right now. And that is that Marvel and DC have been dealing with for like 50 years the benefits and the downfalls of this shared continuity that they have. That Marvel has essentially one continuous story that it's been telling since 1961 and that DC has one continuous story that it's been telling for like seven or eight minutes or however long it's been since they last (laughs) rebooted, but they reboot and then they just tell the same story they did previously. So not much actually changes ever, but that continuity it's good because it gives us this connected story and it gives us the ability to, have a lot of places where the characters can sort of reference things and it can add to the story because you know what's happened to them in the past. But it also becomes a real impediment sometimes 
to new creators as they're trying to tell stories because they get put in a box by the stories that have been told previously. I just love that, that it just starts out right at the beginning. Let's do things differently this time. And it starts out with Gwen and it sort of tells her story. And this really was in many ways her movie. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily Miles movie because she's the one who has all the real character development doing during it. But the next one's going to be big for him because he's going to have to uh, save the day and all the rest. Really good stuff. So what, what did you think about that? I had not even considered that until you say it now, but it makes a lot of sense. And, and it, it was great how they decided to tell a different story, but also still referenced how they could tell a different story, but still keep what we've seen before it didn't invalidate what we've seen before it may it may it added additional context and made made it made us look at it in a different light yep and just the the other the other implication that the the dark spider has essentially that spider-man 2099 has is that if you change it it's going to destroy everything essentially that if you change Spider-Man, the Marvel Universe is going to crumble. If you change right. things, no one will accept it and it'll destroy everything. And it's sounding like Miles doesn't agree with that. And I don't agree with that either. I think that sometimes change is, is good and it needs to happen. Because it, uh, it gets stale otherwise. Sure. There was a news story that came out... Um more recently talking about different versions of the same film being in theaters, which I thought was really interesting. And so viewers that have gone to see across the spider verse multiple times, especially if they go to different movie theaters have actually been able to see small differences in the movie from one viewing to the next. And the, discovery or kind of the the big thing that kind of tipped people off about this was very early on actually when uh miguel o'hara is talking with his ai assistant layla and asking her to signal for backup which is jessica drew when 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 she comes in and so some viewers said that they had saw the scene end with layla kind of pointing at o'hara after saying that she's already done it while others uh, recall her doing this like selfie pose while putting a bunny yep. filter on Miguel O'Hara. I've seen it twice. I've seen the bunny ears both times, but people were asking like, am I crazy? Is this, is this something that's going on? It was all but confirmed by editor Andy Leviton on Twitter he retweeted one of these one of these people asking this question actually had a video of the two different versions sa- saying i was wondering when people might start noticing so there are in fact small differences in the film and and there is a reddit post that culture crave has pl- uh, a screenshot of of people saying other differences that they think they've seen Uh, across multiple viewings of the film and i just we've seen like different versions and in fact this is actually uh depending on when you've seen it 
this film. You could have seen two different versions because there were some audio issues across the first week or so that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. But to actually see small differences in like the animation and stuff is 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 just I think rather rather groundbreaking. I, I I don't I can't think of a time where I've ever seen or heard about something like this. Clue, clue, man, it's 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 clue all over again. Do you remember that they had different yes. different uh, endings in different theaters? But but yeah, outside of that. I wonder if it is different versions, like essentially maybe they, but it sounds like there's so many changes that you know, this is what you can do with digital though, I guess they don't have to strike prints or anything like that. So they could easily send out 15 or 20 different, you know, digital versions to different places and different movie theaters get slightly different things. Also probably an indication that they did really believe that this was going to be a film that folks like me would go to see over and over and over and over. Multiple times, yeah. Very cool. All right, so we we talked about this at the end of the recap. This movie doesn't have an ending. It just ends. We have a to-be-continued. Yeah. I, I don't remember seeing that, like, since, like, Back to the Future or something, where we just, we had, we had a movie, and it just sort of, I mean, this is one of the longest movie you know animated films we we've ever had and it, the story's not done and and they they definitely needed more time yep and and so they they to be continued and in, in, yeah. in an editor's note i could not be happier twice the spider-verse is way better than not twice the spider-verse so and it's not like they they cut back on this and it's an hour and 20 minutes or something like that. This thing was two hours and 20 minutes, even as just the first part. So it was a big film. Uh, The question now is when are we actually going to get the next one? Because they said it'll be sooner than you think, but there's also some people who kind of were working on it who imply that there's maybe not as much done as people say there is. And if it got caught up in the writer's strike, it could be a long time. So right. we will see what happens. Who who knows? We've talked about a lot of like really great things about this movie, but there are a few things that have come out since the movie was released that aren't so great. And, you know, we just talked about one of them. There was some sound mixing issues on opening weekend, which made dialogue difficult to hear over the music. Uh, the Those complaints were mainly targeted uh, during that introductory scene where we get a lot of the backstory of Spider-Woman, Gwen Stacy, and the co- confrontation with her dad and then her leaving. Sony was pretty quick, I think, on sending out updated versions. It took about a week or so. They were ta- telling people on, on, on Twitter and other social media that there was actually a post uh, from one of the from one of the uh, the screenwriters saying, you know, they the movie theater should have their volume reference number at like seven point five, and it would sound great. And so they said, here here's your mission. If you're concerned about that, go in early and talk to them and make sure that they do that during that first week before they were able to reissue. 
uh, versions of of the film with a better better audio mix. Huh. A better audio mix or with instructions to the theaters on how to do it? it it's supposed to be a better audio mix, so they wouldn't have to have it at a certain reference hmm. reference number or something like that. That's weird. Yeah. But they can't the, just depend on the theaters having people who can actually set the sound numbers proper. That's uh, well, I mean, with all the different audio systems and different things like that, I'm sure there's a lot to cinema is dead. Good yeah. Lord. It's terrible. But the, the larger story and, and concern it was from an article on June 23rd from Vulture that talked to four different people that worked on the film that alleged that production faced difficulties due to numerous requests from Phil Lord to make changes to already finished animations, as well as the need for him to prove animation layouts early in production. So he he was like the one man band and everything had to go through him. You know, ultimately, I think it, it seems like he had a lot of the say in how things went, that he was making uh, lots of changes, was making changes after things were already finished from an animation standpoint, which meant lots of overtime and having to do lots of revisions uh, very, very late in in kind of the production schedule. There was talk that uh, the, the working conditions were difficult and that over a hundred artists had to leave the project before it was completed. And to your point, your, your comments about when we're going to see the next version, one of those four artists that they spoke to said that beyond the Spider-Verse, the next film, the film sequel, has not progressed and that there was no way that this film was going to meet its scheduled March of 2024 release window that, that they currently have it slated for. There's been a lot of talk about crunch uh, specifically in like video games and things like this, where you you have lots of long hours and and trying to hit potentially unreasonable deadlines and things like this, and it's it's it sucks that this is potentially happening uh, in, in an animated film like this. Yeah, it's not surprising in a lot of ways. the The crazy thing is that. You know, this reminds me too of, as a IT guy, you know, back in the day, Steve Jobs, a lot of times when they were getting ready to do a launch at Apple, he would work people just about to death. And, you know, Bill Gates, I remember, had a, a policy where when you came into the, the parking lot at Microsoft, you had to park in order of when you got there. So, like, all parking rows were filled up from first to last. Uh -huh. So, if you left and there were people who were still on the driver's side of your car, that meant you weren't putting in as many hours as other people. And they actually checked the parking lot and kept track of this sort of stuff. So there are so many people who are project runners and, and kind of the, the folks doing these things that are just unreasonably sort of obsessed and in many cases, they work themselves to death, too. But that still doesn't make it any better for the people who've decided to try and make a living working for them. Hopefully this gets sorted out 
it is unfortunate. But on the other hand, is this something where video games, we see this all the time too, the video game industry is renowned for this crunch nonsense where I think, well, you back in the day with a lot of your games, you would see this like with the, the, the new versions of, oh, what's it called? World of Warcraft or something? Yeah. Didn't they have that a lot of times where they would, no? I, I, not that we ever heard heard of. I, I mean, I. it seems like a lot of, you have a lot of these like open world games and these games that have like all these different like main stories along with all these side stories and things like this. And because of all the, all of that and trying to make these games that are, you know, 40, 60, 100 plus hour games, it takes a lot of work to even build like a 20 hour game. Yep. And so, you know, the amount of time and effort and you have boards and shareholders and that that are dictating when things need to go out to ensure, you know, a good financial year. And it, and it just sort of seems like the idea of waiting until something is completely ready seems to be going further and further out the door. And it's just yep. get it out there uh, to, to meet, you know, some arbitrary deadline. Well, and that may have been what happened here as much as anything is they had changed the story and extended the story so much that they had literally had to just cut cut it in half and finish what they could so they could hit the, a, a release date. And then now we'll have to start over again, getting the rest of it done. Yeah, and it's interesting because actually June 2nd, 2023 is basically a year later than when they originally announced this film was going to come out. When they first announced this film in 2019, it was supposed to come out in 2022. And so the fact that this ended up coming out a year later, and we're still hearing about the fact that they had this crunch to try and meet this deadline. I'm going to share this in just a minute, but production on this film was completed May 20th. 2023 that is 13 days before the u.s release date so they were like right down to the wire on this thing that's crazy that is absolutely crazy hopefully they'll get it sorted out i feel for any of the folks whose lives are disrupted by crazy crazy bosses with with their unreasonable demands right so All right, so with all of this, we get to the end of it. I love this film. You love this film. Yeah. We also saw The Flash last week or a couple weeks ago, which is now on pace to be one of the biggest flops in Hollywood history. Uh We're talking Ishtar's Gate type type of numbers that it might end with. Should more of these superhero movies maybe look at being animated with a budget of a hundred million dollars and making 400 instead of, you know, $300 million and making a hundred or two, 200. Do you think that there is a place for, in other words, because normally animated movies for the superhero stuff end up being the relatively low budget direct to video type thing. Right. Spider verse is unusual in being a, a relatively big budget full release animated movie 
And it has absolutely hit a home run twice now because it made a lot of money on the first one. It's going to make a lot of money on the second one. It seems like there are a lot of people out there who are perfectly happy to go to an animated superhero movie. And that, in fact, you know, again, if you do it right, this really is a perfect way to animate, you know, what is essentially cartoon art is to simply turn it into an animated movie, which is just thousands of frames of cartoon art one after another, right? So what do you think? Would you be willing to see more of these or do you still like the live action? I mean, I like live action and I have enjoyed most of the live action stuff that that I've seen. And I think there's definitely some things that you can do there that I think I like seeing in live action. But I don't think Spider-Verse should be the exception. I think there should be more animated films featuring the superheroes that that we that we love and care about because i think this shows that that you if you create a good product and tell a good story you can it it can be a hit and spider-man obviously very very popular and i don't know if it necessarily this would extend to the entire stable of marvel or dc characters but I think, you know, some of the bigger the some of the bigger characters, I think it it makes sense. I mean, there's a new there's a new Spider-Man TV show on Adult Swim that just started in the last week or so that's animated. I think that there's a an audience for this and I think the audience actually is a fairly sizable and diverse audience. I mean, even the theater today I thought there was a wide range of ages and and different demographics that were at the theater. I, I think people would see it if, 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 if you put a good product, I think people will see it. Yeah. I, I guess I'm, I'm somewhat facetious in that. I don't want them to stop making live action shows, but I do think that if you really want to do something sort of break some of the boundaries that are difficult to do and make it look realistic, you know, some, I guess what I would say is some of the scenes in this movie would look ridiculous if they were if they were live action animated, even uh-huh. if the animation was spectacular. Because at a certain point when you make it look too much like real life, some of the things that these various spiders are doing would just be ridiculous. Right? That abstraction of real life into the cartoon also lets you do some things that are hard to do in live action. Just because they would look ridiculous, so right. we can just have both. Yeah, so I would I, be fine with both. I'd be I'd be good with that as well. All right, so I'm going to talk a couple quick tidbits about this film and some references to the comics. I mean, we've we've talked about a whole bunch of those, but so I couldn't find an exact date on when production on this film started. But uh, on June 9th, twenty twenty, the film's lead animator. Nick Kondo announced that production had started. So that's the closest thing that we have for a start date on when this film was was started. And as I mentioned earlier, production on the film was completed May 20th, 2023, only 13 days before the U.S. release date. This runtime of two hours and 20 minutes is the longest American animated film to date 
surpassing the previous record holder, uh, Consuming Spirits, which is a film from 2012, by four minutes. I did not know that. Yeah. And I have, I have never seen Consuming Spirits. And it looks... Wow. <laughs> it's that good, huh? Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. Interesting. So references to the comics, we talked about the comic book kind of sectioning that they used comic book covers to kind of mark a new section or new chapter in the story, which I think it was a really great framing device. Uh, you talked about the Hammerspace reference. The Hammerspace is a nod to John Mulaney's Spider-Ham, who was able to pull character cartoon objects like hammers out of nowhere as seen uh, into the Spider-Verse and again here during uh, Across the Spider-Verse. We had the Great Web of Life and Destiny uh, is actually a multiverse concept that actually came out of Marvel Comics. So that is uh, that is something that you would have seen potentially in the comics. Mm-hmm. The cr- interesting one is Miguel O'Hara talking about the death of Captain Stacy and his equivalents was given a canon event designation of ASM-90. <laughs> this is a reference to yeah. the 1970s Amazing Spider-Man number 90, which is an issue in which the very first and original Captain Stacy dies. When we first meet Miguel, uh, when he's introduced to Miles, there is an unfinished version of the all-new, all-different Spider-Man 2099 suit that can be seen in the background uh, that is red, white, and black, which may he may end up using potentially in the next uh, in the next movie beyond the Spider-Verse. Uh, we saw the Spider Bot. That is that is something that uh, was pulled from the original Marvel comics. So that that was probably something. It, it looks apparently exactly like the version, uh, the like the round ball with the little legs and stuff. Uh, you could that that you could uh, see in the comics. And then yeah, the all the all the spider people and animals in the spider society are. Uh, most of them, I think, are references from from various comic runs throughout the Marvel history. There you go. Yeah, there's so much stuff. So much stuff. Would uh, it would take days to go through all of it? But that's a that's a bunch of cool. That's a bunch of cool additional trivia. So, yeah, um, I like it. I like it a lot. All right, Dwayne. I, I think I think both media hit you with some pretty good options this last couple of weeks, but it is now time for our face-off. You read the comics, um, Miles Morales, Ultimate Comic Spider-Man number one through twelve, and you've watched Across the Spider-Verse. Which of them? Which of them does it better? Which, which do you think you preferred? I think I have to go with the movie. There's just so much here to like. Uh, it's it's really apples to oranges, I have to say. In all in all honesty, I mean, we saw the introduction of Miles Morales and him be getting his his spider powers and things like this, and I think that was a really interesting and well done story by Brian Michael Bendis. But I think the story that is being told 
in the movie and all the art and the animation and the music and everything about this is so good. It, it I think it's something that whether you're a comic book fan or not, I think you get something out of this. And I think that's the true measure of whether or not something is, is worth watching or, or is successful as if it can hit a large audience and and be a, a resounding success then then you've probably hit on something pretty great and by all accounts it looks like across the spider-verse it has been a big hit across a wide wide audience base not even going to attempt to argue it the the simple fact is that the miles morales comics are excellent stuff they made a nice baseline uh, introduced a new character but i mean even like we talked last week it was a new Spider-Man, there were some innovations, but really it's not like it was doing that many things, even, you know, when it it had a, a black and Puerto Rican Spider-Man, but they didn't do much with it to really make that relevant. These movies have made, you know, his, his race and ethnicity important. It's expanded the universe. The art is just spectacular. So on a on a scale of not only just the overall reach of it, because obviously Spider-Verse is going to get to a lot more people than the comics did, but it's also taken Miles Morales, a character who was already popular, and has really elevated him. Because I think you can see, you know, even with with like the MCU, they didn't bring Miles Morales in. They just, you know, stole his stole his man in the chair and forgot about him and, and called it good. Whereas over here Spider-Verse has really turned this now into a character that I think is going to be a very, very important part of the Marvel Universe because so many young people, this is going to be you know, one of their two Spider-Men. They've got Tom Holland and now they've got Miles Morales and probably they're going to be co-equal Spider-Man in, in a lot of people's minds for a long time. Right. Yeah. Win for the movie. Two and a yeah. That's, uh, that's how it goes this week. All right, Dan, do we have some correspondence this week? Yeah, so uh, we got a, got a, another email from Amanda, which was nice. Actually, she finished up the Phases podcast and has joined us over here on Comics Over Time. So welcome, Amanda. Actually, one of the things that she also noted was that, you know, we, we talk about comics readership. I'm always obsessed about comics finding new audiences and things like that and she was talking to her daughters who are teens uh, about reading comics and they basically are just like they'll read comics but they won't actually go and hunt through stores to find them and go out and and actively try to to track them down so they're reading online comics they're reading anime it's interesting because my experience with my kids is very much the same if I give my kids comics to read while they're sitting around one afternoon, they'll probably enjoy them and they'll, they'll read them. I know they're reading comics digitally, but it is difficult to get them to actually go out and find new comic titles with me and stuff like that. Most of the time when they're reading them, if they are buying them, it's going to be one of those anime manga series. So they'll, they'll watch the anime and then they go out and buy the manga to, to sort of read through the story as well. 
things like Chainsaw Man, I believe, is the current rage in our house. So <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> I believe is literally a guy with like a chain, a chainsaw hand or something like this. So there you I, have go. Not, I have not read it. Similar, similar things going on with us, uh, Amanda, as what you're having with your kids there. So we'll keep at them. See if we can find the, the magic bullet to get them interested in, in reading more comics. All right, Dan, where are we headed next week? Next week, I am headed off to London. So I actually, by the time you guys have this, I'm not going to be around. So where we're headed off to is wherever you want to go, Dwayne. Tell us, what yes. exactly are you going to be talking about next week? Yeah, so Dan is going to be on vacation the next couple weeks, but we are going to be having shows next week. I am going to be joined by a guest host, and we're actually going to be looking at the 2017 film Logan. A really good movie from what I remember. It's been quite a while since I've seen it. So I'm looking forward to rewatching that and getting together with a friend uh, who's a big fan of of Wolverine and the X-Men and that and talking about that movie. So we we hope you will join us for that. So are you reading any comics to get ready for that at all? I was going to, but I've run out of time to actually get through them. So I will, we will have some references to some comics that you can read uh, to go along with the film. But I, we won't be doing a, a review of any comics along with the movie review. Sorry about that. No worries. There you go. I leave for one week and you turn it into a movie podcast. I should have known this would happen. Yeah, we are going to co we are going to cover two movies the next two weeks while you're gone. But when you get back, we will get back into comics and stuff. So sounds good. So what's the next one? The other one that we will do is looking at the movie Constantine, which I didn't even realize was based on a comic book series. No, absolutely, absolutely. Yep, all the way, all the way back swamp things and then he had his own hellblazer for a long time it's good stuff very cool well i look forward to listening to those whilst i am wandering around uh in in europe so should be a lot of fun and uh look forward to getting back i will be here again in three weeks and with that, that is going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show, on Across the Spider-Verse, maybe the ultimate comics Spider-Man from Brian Michael Bendis that we read last week. We'd love to get them from you. You can email the show. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com, or you can reach out to us via social media on Twitter. That address is at comicsovertime. Dan, it was great talking across the Spider-Verse with you. It was great seeing it again. I hope you have a great vacation, and uh, we'll see you in, in like three weeks. Absolutely. Have fun. See you folks later. Take care, everybody. Thank you.